Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. As you do, we're happy to acknowledge the return of Frederica Lloyd from her surgery. Good, 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 good. And unhappy to acknowledge the departure of John and Mary Margaret Culpepper, who's I think is your last Sunday here. The Navy has cut in half the time they expected to be among us, and we are the poorer for it, but have been the richer for having served with you. Thank you. God bless you. We come this morning to the end of the series on the ministry pillars of the church, the so-called focuses of the church's ministry that are given to us from Scripture. Nothing innovative or novel here, just simply a reinforcement of the teachings of the Scriptures. And we begin to encounter them on page, I mean, excuse me, on in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Peter has completed his sermon, and it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wondrous and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their houses and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, from your word. Guide and direct our thoughts. Make application of these things that are transformative in our lives and make us more like Jesus and less like ourselves less like the flesh and the old man and the old nature. Set us free by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My mother and I have had a difference of opinion about the church, and we're continuing our discussion. I don't often differ with her. I've learned it's not wise. (laughs) However, we have a different view of the church to this extent as it comes to us in this morning's passage. It's her contention that church attendance and involvement is primarily, fundamentally, a matter of habit. You simply get yourself in the habit of coming to church and doing things for the Lord. Now, I I grant there's a certain amount of truth to that, but I think I have the weight of Scripture on my side. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, verse 42, and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. 
The root word, the root form of that word, devoting themselves, has to do with the heart. And most of the things that we do by habit, we don't do from the heart. We do them because we willfully decide that we need to do them. What we eat, exercise, etc., we do them as a matter of will. But it would seem that here in the case of the early church and which we have been studying, that they devoted themselves, as the sermon says today, they continued steadfastly from the heart. The root word there includes cardia, and cardia is the heart. From From the heart they came. And what was it that they did? Well, this passage, of course, can be divided into two major sections, the first of which we will not look into so much. It has to do with the message of the church, which is the same as ever. This is our message. The message of Peter is our message as well. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all those who are far off. And with these and many other words, he pleaded and said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And there was a tremendous response. What then did they do? And this has been our purpose in these last weeks. Next week, we return to Mark and to our study of that gospel as we go into the Lenten season. I've listed five indications that I've gleaned from our study and from other places. This is the one place where the four pillars of our church ministry are found in one spot, but they are woven like through a tapestry of the whole New Testament, and this isn't the only place by any means that we could find them. But what he is saying, I believe, is that the first indication of a new life as a Christian is a drawing together of people who have this life in common. Remember, this is Pentecost. Remember, there are people from every tribe and nation, so-called, People coming together under various languages and customs and backgrounds and interests. And now all of a sudden, after having been touched by the Lord, they are devoted to these things and to coming together. They've changed just like that. It's not been a matter of habit and prolonged effort. It's been a matter of immediate response. Something happened inside of us when we became a Christian And that work inside of us continues to this day, and one of the things that it does is it draws us together with other Christians, people with whom otherwise we would have little or nothing in common, people with whom we have maybe even strong differences in some areas, politics and philosophy and child-rearing and diet and all the other things that make up life. But we are brought together by the Holy Spirit in this changed life And one indication, the first indication of a new life is a drawing together of people who have this life in common. And that's what they did. Although they had every reason in the world to separate, they came together and they held things in common. Secondly, the second indication of a new life is a drawing together regularly and willingly. It says they they were together regularly. Every day, verse 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So both at church or at the temple and in their homes, their lives were woven more and more together. Not because they were fundamentally alike, but because they were fundamentally different and had been brought together by a common Savior. They came not only when asked or occasionally, but they regularly came together to build one another up. Thirdly, 
The third indication of a new life is a willingness to meet with all types of people. I've mentioned that already. This is maybe the hardest part. Changing one's schedule is hard enough around such regular devotions and commitments to one another, but to meet with all types of people, people who are so markedly different, who challenge me culturally, linguistically, in so many ways, this isn't easy. And indeed, it's cultural questions which most often divide the church, questions about music and style and dress and These are the things that have plagued the church ever since these days in Acts. But not for them. They were very different, but they came together. Fourth indication of a new life is a recognition that we share in one common faith family. Brothers and sisters we are now. Not mentioned here, but throughout the New Testament, we are told we are part of a new faith family when we come to Christ. And now, as Jesus said, our family, our faith family, is closer to us than even our own blood family in many cases. And so it is because we share one common core Holy Spirit work in our lives. And then the last indication of a new life is to value these things very highly and to integrate them into our lives on purpose. That sounds a little more like uh, habit. I'm going to do this willfully. I'm going to set my face toward it. I'm going to build my life on it. The church, as I say here, was a group of people who came together and built their lives on the reality that God was present in their midst and he expressed himself among them. And these are the four areas which we have focused on these last several weeks and we do today again in terms of review. They, from the heart, not as a matter of habit, But from the heart, because their insides had been changed, because something had happened to them that was radical and transformational by the power of the Holy Spirit, from the heart, they began to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. No indication, you know, that they were browbeaten into this or guilted into it. They just wanted to do it from the heart. They came together to study the Scriptures. Truth is not subjective and personal, as I say. It is alive and active and as an, as an objective power. Its power comes in and changes us. When we dig in and reflect and wrestle and think, it is transformative. The Scriptures are central. And one of the reasons we know that they're central is because Jesus' life was directed by them. He was never far from the Scriptures. He quoted it often. He devoted himself to it. And therefore, the writer to the Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first communicated through the Lord and confirmed to us by those who heard him, while God confirmed their witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The church was growing, the church was expanding, and at the heart of it was an inward devotion to the Scriptures. And such it will ever be. There can be no great revival apart from the Word of God. There can be no personal reformation apart from devotion to these things. The Bible simply is mentioned first because it's most important. Of all the activities, Jesus quotes scripture to the devil at his temptation. 
on the cross to his Father. And throughout his life, his word, his life saturated by the word of God. And so, it's clear enough, isn't it? They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. They acquired a gift and a skill that is fundamental to the kingdom of God. They listened. Everybody has opinions. Everybody has theories. Everybody likes to hear themselves express those theories and opinions. But the church in these days devoted themselves to somebody else, to someone else's words, to someone else's so-called opinions and theories, the Word of God, which, of course, is not opinion and theory. It was fundamental and central to what they did. And they paid closer attention, as the writer Hebrews says, to what we have heard. Now, you expect me to say, read your Bible. That's my job. I say, look at the scriptures. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What are you doing to study and learn the scriptures and to express your devotion to it? What steps do you take? What actions are involved? Are you incorporating regular study of the scriptures? It's easier, you know, with others. That's what they were doing. They weren't doing it in an isolated way. They were doing it with other people. And together they devoted themselves to the Scriptures. Together they sat under its authority. Together they listened. Terrific illustration. It says further, and I've had some responsibility in this area and during our series, they devoted themselves to the koinonia, to the, to the fellowship and on some of these first five imp- implications that I call to your attention come from this very phrase. They came together. They didn't allow their circumstances and differences and schedules to push them apart. They devoted themselves, went out of their way, intentionally, on purpose, built connection with other believers into their daily lives. Nothing richer than this. Now, of course, as we've said, people don't always see things the way we do. And sometimes to get together and get to know them is to have to listen to things we don't want to listen to, opinions and ideas that are unwelcome and with which we disagree. And we see practices and things that we we don't, I mean, we don't do it that way in our house. And it's objectionable. It's off-putting. Well, these people are different than me. They think differently. They have different ways of expressing themselves. They love differently. They, they, they find themselves in completely different circumstances and customs. Nevertheless, from the heart, the people devoted themselves to one another. They said, I'm going to get past that because there's something real in their heart and life that is connecting to mine. I'm going to get past the surface differences and the off-putting personality or practices, and I'm going to love them. 
Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and with every humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the, bond of the, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Making every effort. Sometimes church is unsatisfying and connections with people at church are unsatisfying because we make no effort. We don't see the riches of the transgenerational and transsexual and all the other connections, barriers being crossed. We don't see the value of listening to other people. The primary skill in the kingdom of God is listening not only to the Word of God, but also to His people. No, they're not perfect like the Scriptures are, but they have something to teach us. And God can use them in a mighty way. So one way of living a life worthy of the calling with which you have been called, Paul writes, is that you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Go out of your way to get to know, to not be repulsed by those in the body of Christ who may be different than you. This, of course, Jesus did all the time. He was dealing primarily with Jews, but of course there were Gentiles there too, and they felt welcome in his presence. The centurion and others came to Jesus and were not pushed away. And when he got into the upper room at the last part of his life, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. I really want to be with you. In fact, I'm going to use my name, Emmanuel, to remind you that God with us is what I want. I want to be with you. I want to be a part of your life. I want to walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. So Jesus is completely committed to his people. Now, they may have been Jews, and they may have been fellow members of his generation and culture, but they were not an easy bunch, right? They vexed him. They betrayed him. They denied him. They misunderstood him. And he endured it all because, in part, of his commitment to build a kingdom, to build a people. And so the people of Jesus have captured that and have been led in that direction by the Holy Spirit, for they devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship. Furthermore, they were devoted to evangelism, although it doesn't mention any evangelism programs. It says in the last verse that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So something was going on. Something was being said. And as they met daily, they also influenced daily the culture around them and loved to by praising God, as it says there in verse 47, enjoy the favor of all the people. There's something attractive about the gospel. There's something attractive about the love of God's people working together. We have in our bulletin this morning a thank you note from Connie, Debbie's sister. She saw your love for her and for the family, and it was attractive to her. She didn't say it's none of your business. 
She didn't say, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I'm grieving. She welcomed us to be a part of her life because what you contributed to her life was attractive. Now, she's already a believer, but it was, this attractiveness is something that we can work on from the heart. They were not just preaching. The beauty of the Christian community was attractive to people. Now, of course, 2 Timothy 3 warns us in verse 12 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed. The gospel is not uniformly attractive. For many people, it's a stumbling block. For many people, it's a cause of division and, and dissension and derision. But on balance, when God's people are praising Him and living like this and devoted to these things, there is an attractiveness that the world likes. And although they begin, may begin to criticize, they are soon won over by the faithfulness of God's people. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We should say before we get to this fourth pillar that evangelism was never far from Jesus' heart. The crowds came to him. He loved their coming. He welcomed them. There was something about him that was attractive. And insofar as he shines out of us, other people will be attracted too. They will see him. And there's nothing more interesting and attractive than Jesus Christ. There's never been a person. There's never been a kingdom. There's never been anything like what Jesus can do through us and through his people. And he was always coming to seek and save that which was lost. He was always seeking to call together his people, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a mother carries her chicks, but you would not. So he was devoted to evangelism, and that's why we do it. Fourthly, devoted to worship. They said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, they knew how to pray. They grew up good Jews, going to the synagogue, going to the temple, going to the various festivals of the year, and reading their psalm book and learning about prayer. Prayer was a part of the ancient Hebrew tradition for generations, of course. But there was something about Jesus' prayers perhaps the way he prayed and what he said, that they wanted to get in on, that they felt that they were missing. And part of it, surely, is that he was devoted to it. Mark says he often withdrew to the lonely places in the morning and prayed, sometimes praying all night, praying right before his crucifixion at Gethsemane. Throughout his life, he prayed, lifting his eyes to heaven before healing Lazarus. Awe, as I say, intimacy, glad hearts, generous and powerful, prayerful lives come as a result of devotion to the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, that may be a reference to fellowship suppers, or it may be a reference to communion. Both seem to be well subscribed by students of this passage. Either way, all of life is worship. And if it refers to communion, then all the better. They devoted themselves to it. Prayer is hard work. 
Prayer isn't natural. The natural bend of our hearts is to ask for ourselves and to seek only our own welfare. But prayer teaches us to give glory to God, to be inspired by Him and praise Him, as it says in verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. One of the greatest ways that you and I can ever pray, praise Him is to pray. Our prayers offer Him a delight and a praise that our other words don't touch. So how do we do all this? How do we have a church that keeps in mind these four ministry focuses of evangelism and worship and fellowship and scripture study? Well, they have to be balanced. They were balanced in the lives of the early church. They need to be balanced in our lives. As I say, we don't want just teaching, but no fellowship or worship or celebration. So these four give us, a, as it were, four legs on which to stand as a congregation. Some congregations have gotten in trouble before, and denominations even, by emphasizing only and exclusively the Scriptures. The Scriptures are of vital importance. They're mentioned first, but they're not the only thing. A certain balance has to come. So we don't want just teaching, but no fellowship or celebration. Likewise, we don't want just great music and worship, but no truth where the emotion and the feeling and the, and the sense of praise and honor is there, but not guided and directed by the eternal Word of God. And we don't want fellowship and community, but no outreach. Only inwardly seeking, many congregations and many ch- denominations have been so inwardly focused that they're no outward good. We're looking for a balance. So what specific action do we take? We apply these things. We devote from our heart Praising God together, ourselves, through the Scriptures, to prayer, to fellowship. How do we get it? We go back to the first part of this passage. Repent and believe. Repent and trust in Him. That's what Peter concludes with, and that's what we begin with. We're going to be devoted to one another. It's going to be because He is devoted to us. So we're not a church that has arrived we have made a good start over these years, and we're moving in the right direction, I believe, but it's a, it must be a church that loves God on the way of the journey, a spirit-filled church moving toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission, not a perfect church, an imperfect church made up of imperfect people. But what does this church, the early church, have to teach us about us? Well, in Revelation 2 we read, I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. Therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, if you do not repent. So the way back, the way to revival, and the way to apply these things is through humble repentance before the Lord. We have imperfectly loved him and one another. We have imperfectly applied the scriptures to our lives. We have been thoughtless and careless toward one another and sometimes even mean. Things have been said that shouldn't be said. Things have been done that shouldn't be done, indeed. But we are seeking to devote ourselves to these things and trust that by the devotion to these four ministry focuses, we will become transformed from the inside out, just as he has given us new life in Christ 
these activities guide our lives in the right direction. This is the essence of the congregation of the Lord's people. In every culture, Togo, America, Europe, Southeast Asia, this is the work of the church to be devoted to his teachings, to be devoted to one another in fellowship, to be devoted to outreach and accomplishing the Great Commission, and to be devoted in worship to him. If we could just focus on these four things, week by week, day by day, we will grow in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will become more real inside of us. So let us rededicate ourselves this day as we have gone through this series and summarize it now. Rededicate us to these four ministry focuses, which were the focus of Jesus' life. Fellowship, Scripture, outreach, and worship. Take whatever order you want, but let us give ourselves to them, not making them a habit, but expressing them from the inside out. Shall we pray? Lord, make us like that early church, a people of differences and yet unity, a people of devotion to the things that really matter, and from our heart be directed by your Spirit that the study of the apostolic teaching, that devotion to one another in koinonia fellowship, that outreach to the lost, and that worship might be central to us as a congregation. We see these as eternal truths applicable in every culture and time. And we pray that you may use us and work in and through us. That we from the heart may be devoted to these things and thereby please you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.